The Treasury Secretary says the country will reach its debt limit next week. And that she'll take extraordinary measures to push default off as long as she can. We'll find out what that means. I'm Aisha Roscoe. And I'm Scott Simon, and this is Up First from NPR News. Meanwhile, the Attorney General wants to know how classified documents ended up in President Biden's home and private office. We have a look at how an investigation might affect the President's relationship with the Justice Department. And we'll go to Alabama as people there recover from those severe twisters that rip through the state. That is true what they say. It does roar like a train. Stay with us. We've got the news you need to start your weekend. The assumption that the U.S. government can always be counted on to pay its bills may be tested soon. The federal government's about to reach its $31 trillion borrowing limit. And House Republicans say they won't vote to raise the debt ceiling unless they get spending cuts or other concessions. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. Welcome. Good morning. Let's start with the timing. When is this all going to come to a head? Well, the exact deadline is not certain, but it's not too far off. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen sent a letter yesterday to congressional leaders saying she expects to hit the debt ceiling next Thursday when the government's holding a big Treasury auction. Now, she can buy some time beyond that by raiding retirement funds. That's kind of like digging under the couch cushions to find cash for the pizza guy. But it only works for so long. So sometime around the middle of this year, maybe as early as June, Lawmakers are either going to have to raise the debt limit or else the government won't be able to pay all the bills that Congress has run up. And a default like that could be really destabilizing. If markets can't depend on the U.S. government to pay its bills, well, all bets are off. You know, raising the debt ceiling is something lawmakers have to do every year or two. What makes this time more challenging than usual? Well, you're right. This is always a fraught vote. Nobody likes voting to okay more government debt. But what makes people particularly nervous this time is you have a small faction of Republicans in the House who've shown they're not afraid to blow things up to get what they want. After all, that's why it took 15 rounds of voting just to elect Kevin McCarthy as House Speaker. Now, McCarthy told Sean Hannity on Fox, uh, House Republicans plan to use this debt ceiling vote as a bargaining chip to extract some concessions on things like spending cuts. We think if you had a child and you gave them a credit card and they kept hitting the limit, do you just increase the limit or do you change their behavior? This is our moment to change the behavior to make sure that hardworking taxpayer that we're not wasting their money. Now, it's worth pointing out House Republicans did not take that position when President Trump was in office. They raised the debt limit three times during that period without much fuss, even as the federal government was adding about $8 trillion in extra debt. As Democratic Senator Ron Wyden said yesterday, deficits are only a problem when a Democrat's in the White House. So what does President Biden plan to do about the debt limit? Biden says this is Congress's responsibility to pay the bills that lawmakers have run up. Uh, The president has had some pretty good economic news lately. The job market's going strong. Inflation eased up a bit last month. And White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre says the president doesn't plan to jeopardize any of that by negotiating over the debt ceiling. It's not and should not be a political football. This is not political gamemanship. This should be done without conditions. Now, if Congress wants to cut spending in the future, lawmakers can obviously do so. But the White House says it's wrong to walk away from the obligations that the government has already incurred. That's not 
putting yourself on a fiscal diet. That's just ducking out on the dinner bill. So what does this mean for the rest of us? So far, financial markets are assuming this is all going to get worked out, and usually it does. But even if the government manages to avoid a default, cutting it close could carry a price tag. Uh, The last time this came down to the wire back in 2011, the stock market tumbled. That took a bite out of people's retirement savings. And the federal government actually saw its credit rating downgraded for the first time ever. So this kind of brinkmanship can actually result in higher borrowing costs for the government, and that just adds to the federal debt. That's NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It could turn into a bit of an awkward situation. This week, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced a special counsel to investigate how classified documents ended up at President Joe Biden's home and private office. And the investigation could affect the White House's relationship with a member of the president's cabinet. NPR Justice Correspondent Kerry Johnson joins us. Kerry, thanks for being with us. Good morning, Scott. What can you tell us about uh, what, what moved the attorney general to launch this investigation that that could conceivably see President Biden interviewed by the FBI. Merrick Garland says there are extraordinary circumstances here. Here's what we know so far. Biden's lawyers found a small number of secret documents where they didn't belong in early November and then found another batch in December and then one more document this week. So it hasn't been a smooth process. The attorney general said appointing an outside prosecutor would be good for transparency and accountability. And that's been a theme we've heard all along from Merrick Garland, starting with his first day at work nearly two years years ago. Here's what Garland told justice employees back in March of 2021. The only way we can succeed and retain the trust of the American people is to adhere to the norms that have become part of the DNA of every Justice Department employee. And about those norms, Garland described them this way. Those norms require that like cases be treated alike that there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for friends and another for foes. In other words, the same standard for everyone. Kerry, how's this investigation different from the one that's looking into how classified materials ended up in Donald Trump's Florida home? Well, for one thing, the Justice Department takes the position that a sitting president cannot be indicted, but a former president might be. Biden's White House says he didn't know about the documents and that having them at home was a mistake. In the Trump case, the FBI got a search warrant to get the papers after months of back and forth with Trump's lawyers, and Trump himself has been all over the map about what he knew about the top-secret documents in Florida. It's clear he didn't want to hand some of them over to the National Archives, though. Jack Smith, the special counsel in the Trump probe, hasn't tipped his hand publicly about what he might do next there. And some of Biden's aides have already been interviewed, and they're likely to be interviewed all over again by the new special counsel, Robert Hur. It's possible the FBI will want to ask Joe Biden some questions, too. Carrie, I'm trying to imagine what the next cabinet meeting might look like <laughs> uh, with the attorney general and the president at the same table. How could this affect the president's relationship with the Justice Department? Well, the White House says it's cooperating with Justice Department investigators, and DOJ did not notify Biden in advance before appointing a special counsel this week. The attorney general did not discuss any of this while he was traveling with the president in Mexico either. I'm told Garland had already made up his mind on the special counsel before that trip. 
The attorney general has said that running the DOJ is like coming home for him. Scott, he worked there decades ago. His sister worked there. His closest friends worked there. And more than 35 of his former law clerks worked there. So protecting the integrity of that institution is paramount to Merrick Garland. Is there an example of the White House and Justice Department coming together? Absolutely. Just yesterday, the DOJ issued a new rule related to firearms. It's part of a bigger effort to crack down on gun violence all over the country. It's just one of many areas where the White House and the Justice Department continue to collaborate despite the special counsel appointment. NPR's Justice Correspondent Kerry Johnson, thanks so much. Happy to be here. And to Alabama now where people are picking up the pieces after severe weather. More than half a dozen people died after thunderstorms and tornadoes hit that state in Georgia Thursday. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett joins us now from Montgomery. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Aisha. So you were in Otaga County, Alabama yesterday. That's about 35 miles north of Montgomery and where most of the fatalities happened Tell us what you saw. Aisha, I was in Old Kingston, the part of the county that was hit the worst. It was a formerly wooded area, and now the trees are almost completely destroyed, along with many houses and cars. When I got there, it was very cold and windy. I saw all these bonfires, which I later realized were the trees the storm had blown down being burned. One of those bonfires was in front of Cindy and John Cox's house. On Thursday, they had just come home from a doctor's visit when the alarm sounded. Cindy says they got into their safe place, and that's when she heard the tornado overhead. That is true. What they say, it does roar like a train. And so how did the Coxes come through the storm? Well, Aisha, Cindy was understandably scared. I was really upset in my closet and on my chair, and... And feeling that shake and hearing that roar, you just hope it don't take the roof with it. But the Coxes say they're grateful because they came out alive with little damage to their house. Some of their neighbors didn't make it. For people listening from other parts of the country, are tornadoes common in Alabama in January? They are, but not this type. So I spoke with meteorologist Gerald Satterwhite, and he said while tornadoes happen in Alabama in January— One this deadly and able to go the distance on the ground that this one traveled is rare. The average is around five miles or so, and uh, this tornado is going to be much higher than that. Uh, We could be looking at, you know, 50 miles or more. He says debris from this tornado, Aisha, shot up into the air as high as 15,000 feet. 50 miles, a tornado traveling 50 miles, that is insane. Kyle, I understand that the emergency alert that the National Weather Service gave for this storm is also somewhat rare. Yeah, when the storm got to Otaga, the Weather Service issued a tornado emergency alert, which was new to me. Satterwhite explained that this designation came about in the 90s to describe situations in which a severe threat to human life is imminent or ongoing. One of the first places the tornado hit was Selma, a city long associated with the civil rights movement. Traditionally, Selma holds events to commemorate Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which is Monday. What do we know about how the city is faring? Selma took a hard hit from the storm. There were no fatalities reported there, thankfully. But schools were closed yesterday and there's just debris everywhere. 
Faya Rose Toure, who for the past 30 years has organized the annual bridge crossing commemorating the 1965 Bloody Sunday March for voting rights, called Selma a war zone. The thing about this storm, it didn't discriminate. Uh, you have um, low-income communities hit hard. You have middle-class communities hit hard. You have the white community hit hard. You have the black community hit hard. You know, Aisha, Dr. King spent a lot of time in Selma and participated in the march to the state capitol in Montgomery. Ture says that as destructive as this storm was, Selma still plans to hold its annual march to the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge on Monday. So what happens next in terms of recovery efforts? The governor of Alabama declared a state of emergency for areas of the state affected by the storms. And just looking around Autauga County and Selma, you can really see it's going to be a while before things get put back together. That's Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett. Kyle, thank you so much. Thank you, Aisha. And that's up first for Saturday, January 14, 2023. I'm Scott Simon. And I'm Aisha Roscoe. Up first is back tomorrow with the fishermen of San Luis, Senegal. Why and how they're risking their lives to make their way to Europe. And you can hear more news, interviews, books, and music on Weekend Edition every Saturday and Sunday morning. You can find your NPR station at stations.npr.org.